This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. What could be the biggest shake-up of public broadcasting for 30 years has apparently got a green light from the Cabinet Ministers last month. But the public's still waiting for the government to announce what it's cooked up behind closed doors over many months, and so are the broadcasters themselves. You could say we're flying blind, but the same token, we're, we are awaiting a decision. I think we'll react quickly and proactively when we receive it. On Media Watch, we look at that. But first, what began as Convoy 2022 went down in flames this week, along with Parliament's playground. And once again, reporters were targeted by the protesters too, sometimes with death threats. The dark side of the loons jarred pretty horribly with soft-focused accounts of Camp Freedom that were published just days earlier. Kia ora, good evening. Fires, fury and forklifts have seen what could be the end of the protest at Parliament. Protesters who have occupied Parliament's lawn for more than three weeks were pushed back when a massive surge of police late tore tents off Parliament's lawn, clearing about a third of it in a matter of minutes. That was Simon Dello on TVNZ's One News at 6pm last Wednesday. Now by that time, Simon Dello and One News had actually been on the air for ages reporting all the chaos, and so had TVNZ reporter Kristen Hall, who was on air from when it started early on day 23. Uh, to my right here, and a lot of the cars that they were staying in have been towed and seized as well. So unless police are able to arrest their way through this very large, cr- large crowd this evening, you're going to have hundreds of people still out on the street spoiling for a fight, and that could get messy. But she was only one of several reporters covering the unprecedented scenes on Wednesday, for whom some people in the same bulletin reach back to 1981 or even 1951 for a comparison. But while racism and workers' rights were at the heart of those capital city upheavals that loom large in our history, TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay didn't feel the same way about this one when Simon Dello asked her this. Did you ever imagine that you would witness scenes like this in New Zealand? Uh, honestly, no. And, and I think that's the thing that's a little bit challenging. And I, I think as a journalist, you always want to be a bit low-key about these things and perhaps reflect on them later. But it's just not a scene that we thought we'd ever seen here. It's a different type of protest. It's a very foreign type of protest that's here. And soon after that, Jessica Much Mackay was echoed by the Prime Minister herself in a pretty downbeat press conference. There has all the way through been an element to this occupation that has not felt like New Zealand, and that's because it's not. There has been foreign influence in what we've seen, Uh, maybe not in the traditional terms that we know it, but in terms of the disinformation that has been sourced out of other countries. But there have also been people working pretty hard on that here in New Zealand, as we'll hear, and the media are still getting to grips with that. In that press conference, Jacinda Ardern also went on to say this. We are not going to dismiss some of the underlying causes of what we've seen, but nor will we excuse it. So as we go through a process of assessing what is it that has allowed that growth and mis- and disinformation in this country and how do we address that? And that was a frustrating answer for some experts, including some journalists, who've been warning about misinformation and disinformation for years. Now, one answer to Jacinda Ardern's own question there about the growth of misinformation is Facebook, which she personally and her government also have used to great effect. So when asked about big tech's role on all this, Jacinda Ardern replied like this. 
alongside that growth in disinformation, uh, is, it is accompanied by a growth in distrust of, uh, of traditional um, forms of uh, or access to information, such as mainstream media, and also distrust in government. So the very channels that we have open to us to try and counter disinformation become seen as part of the problem by those who are um, succumbing to it. It is a, a complex issue. Government will not be able to solve it alone, particularly given the growth in people accessing information in those non-mainstream platforms and media. And she's not wrong that news media and government have the same tech-driven dilemma these days, and it's made worse by activists insisting that they're in league with each other anyway. And that's the reason that both have been targets of protesters in recent days who say they want them just done away with. Many of them would have been watching the coverage of the protest chaos that day on the online conspiracy amplifier Counterspin, whose hosts were loving the nihilism that they'd stoked. I have a feeling this is just the beginning. The popular uprising now is... I don't think this is going to stop. Be proud of what you've done today, but there weren't many hints of what was to come in the cover story of the Weekend Herald's colour supplement canvas headlined Inside Freedom Farm last weekend. This article painted a rosy picture of the occupiers in the early days of the protest. Unpalatable factions at the protest, she said, were getting way more oxygen than the many people whose hearts were in the right place. But even after she returned a week later and found the mood had soured a lot, Amanda Saxton offered no insight into how it might all end. We know that now. But that wasn't the only uncritical account of the occupation which riled critics this past week, as Media Watch's Hayden Donnell now reports. The whole of the Parliament lawn that has been covered in tents for days and days and days is now just a scene of absolute carnage. Viewers could be forgiven for watching these scenes and coming to the conclusion the protests were fueled by an undercurrent of conspiracism that was causing people to behave in increasingly volatile ways. But a little earlier in the week, newsroom's Melanie Reid was painting a very different picture of the tent site at Parliament in her video report, A Visit to Freedom Village. <laughs> There's a lot of families here, and people are really looking out for each other. Yeah. Right, so there's a whole sort of childcare centre here. Yeah. <laughs> so they can also pick up extra clothes. Reid was at the protest to interview the former Advance NZ candidate Claire Deeks, crochet designer Alia Bland and knitter Libby Johnson. Together they lead Voices for Freedom, one of the largest and most well-resourced anti-vax groups in the country. They've supplied the distinctive blue and turquoise signs seen at multiple protests, emblazoned with slogans like, We Call the Shots and Is This the Future You Want for Your Kids? The group has been banned from Facebook for repeatedly breaching its rules on vaccine misinformation and has distributed thousands of flyers containing false or misleading claims about the vaccine, despite advertising standards authority rulings that the material is socially irresponsible and misleading. But those past indiscretions weren't top of mind as Reid introduced the trio. You guys started it, yeah? yeah the yeah, three of you. Yeah, yeah. Three mums. Three mums. Voices for Freedom is one of the key players at the protest. Claire Deeks, Alia Brand and Libby Johnson. Okay. 
Stuff journalist Kirsty Johnston has written about the anti-vax sentiment rife in the country's coterie of mums with substantial followings on Instagram, or mumfluencers. She's tweeted that Voices for Freedom's Just Mums rhetoric is designed to draw in other mums and prey on their anxieties about vaccination. Reid did later explain that many people do have serious qualms about Voices for Freedom. To their detractors, who are many, these women are peddlers of misinformation and a threat to public health. Its founders have carried out interviews with conspiracy theorists, including the German lawyer Rainer Fuhlmisch, who falsely claims that elites planned the COVID-19 pandemic. They've also promoted content from people with a range of strange or demonstrably false views, including that elites are using vaccine passports to bring about a great financial reset. These facts weren't mentioned by Reid in her interview with the founders of Voices for Freedom. Her report, which was paid for by the government's Public Interest Journalism Fund, also apparently didn't have space for an expert on vaccines. It wasn't the first time Reid has given an accommodating ear to people hawking anti-vax misinformation. She also gave space to the anti-vax views of the makers of the debunked film Vaxed from cover-up to catastrophe in a story ahead of its New Zealand debut in 2018. Recently, it seems Reid has again been digging into allegations of vaccine harm. Media Watch has been contacted by a man who had a surprise encounter with her after he started sending false stories to a woman purporting to catalogue post-vaccine medical issues. That man, who asked not to be named due to having been targeted by anti-vax groups in the past, was intending to highlight the woman's inadequate efforts to verify the information she was receiving. But soon after she published his tall stories, he received an interview request. Uh, so I um, had a, a few family members uh, sort of fall down the rabbit hole uh, last year and wanted to sort of investigate myself how easily these uh, stories that I was seeing of all of this death and injury uh, around the vaccine, um, ha- how well they were vetted by the, the groups that were collating them. Um, so I set up a couple of uh, email addresses and sent sort of a, a generic, easily fact-checkable uh, email that had a, a bunch of bunch of holes in it in the story uh, to some of these groups that were collating these stories. After um, I'd sent these these made-up stories to these anti-vax groups, I was contacted by the person running one of these groups, saying that they had a, a well-respected uh, investigative journalist who was working on. Um, looking into these claims. I then emailed Melanie directly um, and uh, set up a call with her uh, to, to go through the story that I'd, I'd sent to this group. And your intention there was to show that they are not credible? Yeah, I mean, I, I explained to her that, you know, you've got these citizen journalists or doctors or scientists or whatever they want to, to claim to be who aren't following basic practice. I sat down and, and had the, the chat with Melanie and, and explained to her that these were, in fact, false stories that I'd, I'd just written one night and sent. At one stage, I asked her if she was vaccinated. Um, that was the one point in the conversation that became heated, if you will. She didn't respond, and that's that's her right not to respond if she doesn't want to, um, but she also uh, said that that's not something that anyone should ever be able to ask anyone else. You expected these sort of anti-vaccine groups to buy into this these stories. 
you didn't necessarily expect to be contacted by a mainstream journalist. No, no, I didn't at all. I Having Melanie reach out, I thought, would have been a good way to uncover that they were sharing these fake stories, which was why I was so keen to talk to her, given the opportunity. But you found that she wasn't interested in the fact that the stories were fake? No, she wasn't interested in that at all. She was more interested in investigating the potential for undercounting of these injuries and deaths, which which is, it struck me as a red flag at the time, but if there was undercounting, then that's something that I guess is worthwhile doing. How long ago was this that this happened? Uh, it was late October last year. What was your impression when you saw this recent mini-documentary, A Visit to Freedom Village, from her? Was it in line with what she was, uh, the stuff that she was putting forward to you? Yes. I mean, I guess I was sitting there hopeful the whole time, waiting for the the second half where she came back and critiqued everything that the VFF founders said. But it's pretty clear to anyone who's actually looked into VFF that they aren't an anti-mandate group. They're an anti-vaccine group, and they have been for um, a good couple of years now. One group that was quite pleased with Reid's latest foray into vaccine reporting was Voices for Freedom. In its emailed letter, it hailed Reid's report as a media exclusive and praised her balanced reporting and encouraged members to let Newsroom know it was happy with its fair representation. But fight against conspiracy theories or fact, a group formed to combat misinformation and disinformation, says Reid failed to put some important questions to Voices for Freedom. I was horrified and as a group, in fact, Altero, I was horrified uh, because it played really perfectly into Voices for Freedom's PR strategy. What is that PR strategy? They present themselves as concerned parents, concerned mums, who are worried about children's wellness, uh, and they're nice. But if you sign up to their mailing lists, you get more alarmist, more out there claims. And if you watch their videos and you frequent their Telegram channels, you get the really out there stuff that is full noise conspiracy theory. The other thing that I think is really interesting is right up until Melanie Reed's interview, they had really shunned mainstream media. So I think you can see that they saw the opportunity for favourable coverage for once and they took it. And as a result, they are now trumpeting that to all their followers. Yeah, so you were really concerned when they were introduced with that framing, just three mums. There's nothing wrong when you're a mum with saying that you're a mum. want to make that really clear, right? I'm a parent too. The problem is that's not just what they are. What they are is the head of a large misinformation organisation, apparently spending large sums of money to persuade people not to be vaccinated. And that's really dangerous. And not just that, they're branching out into many other extremist conspiracy theories whose single underlying theme is that the government is not legitimate, people are being lied to, and so on and so on. They emailed their members recently with a link to a supposed expert The video claimed that there was reason to think that vaccines alter your DNA. This is nonsense. They have urged their followers to watch videos that say that New Zealand local government and government at large 
is in the grip of an agenda, Agenda 21, from the UN to reduce the population, to, uh, to impose totalitarian control. Another example, they urge their members to watch um, videos purporting to show that masks aren't effective, but also saying that masks are part of a strategy to accustom the population to totalitarian control. Melanie Reid didn't press them on any of the things that they say to their members, and these things aren't secret. If you sign up to their mailing list, if you watch their videos, if you join their Telegram channels, you will hear this stuff. What questions should have been asked of the, these three leaders? A whole bunch of questions. Are you vaccinated? That would be really interesting to know. I would ask... Why do you put disclaimers on all your content saying it's not medical advice? Because it sure sounds like medical advice. I would ask, why have you set yourselves up as a limited liability company? Why don't you let your members vote in a democratic structure? I think we should really acknowledge some journalists, many journalists, who've been working really hard on this beat. Uh, and done their best to inform their audience about what's going on. Newsroom themselves have been really great at this. They've been exemplary, apart from this story. I think that this Melody Reid video is actually more shocking because it is so at odds with the rest of Newsroom's approach to covering these issues. That was Stephen Judd, spokesperson for the group Fact, talking to me about Newsroom's video report, A Visit to Freedom Village, published earlier this week. We invited Newsroom and Melanie Reid to respond to the criticism of the report. They declined to be interviewed, but Reid and Newsroom co-editor Mark Jennings answered questions in writing. They said the report should be considered alongside many stories Newsroom has done on the pandemic and misinformation. It was aimed at looking at why Voices for Freedom had set up camp in Parliament grounds and what it would take for them to go home, rather than about investigating their claims about vaccines. And it got the founders of Voices for Freedom in front of the public for the first time. The peer said Reid did challenge them on misinformation, but didn't include much of it because it amounted to, quote, unenlightening recitation of claim and counterclaim. Though they added that, in hindsight, that may have been an error of judgment. Jennings and Reid didn't accept a visit to Freedom Village bought into the Voices for Freedom PR strategy as alleged by fact. It could well be that they bought into our journalistic strategy, they said to get them in front of the public explaining themselves and their intent over this protest. And they said the Voices for Freedom founders denied any ties to extreme or fringe groups. In light of the criticism of Reid's previous reporting of vaccination issues, Melanie Reid and Mark Jennings said she has done many investigations of many highly contested issues, and that is the nature of leading-edge journalism. Last month on the 6th of March, Media Watch reported on A Visit to Freedom Village, a video report published by Newsroom in which its investigations editor Melanie Reid depicted the recent occupation of Parliament. Now that report had been criticised by some for its portrayal of Voices for Freedom, a group which opposes some of the government's COVID control measures and which has been accused of COVID misinformation. Now in our coverage we also broadcast an interview with a man who asked not to be named who was feeding false accounts of COVID vaccine injuries to online groups in order to expose them for circulating misinformation. 
Now, this included him falsifying his identity and fabricating the death of his own child, but MediaWatch admitted this information in its report. On MediaWatch, he also described a phone call with Newsroom's Melanie Reid back in 2020, in which he said he told her about his efforts to expose the groups, but he said she wasn't interested in his story. Now, MediaWatch confirmed with Melanie Reid at the time that she had spoken with the man, but MediaWatch didn't put his claims directly to Newsroom at that time in our programme back on the 6th of March, and according to RNZ's editorial policies, we should have. Now, Newsroom says that the reason Melanie Reid wasn't interested in his story was the highly dubious methods the man was using, and Newsroom has further advised RNZ that Melanie Reid wasn't conducting an interview, as MediaWatch had described it, but having a background chat to find out what he had to say. MediaWatch sincerely regrets that Melanie Reid and Newsroom were not given the opportunity to properly respond to his claims in that programme back on the 6th of March. While Parliament's playground burned this week, TVNZ's Europe correspondent Daniel Faitawa said this over grim pictures of wreckage in Ukraine late last week. Missile fragments lie near to a playground. It's hard to believe this is the year 2022. Now, he didn't say why the outbreak of war now was quite so hard to fathom. Armed conflict broke out just eight years ago between Ukraine and Russia and has continued since. But when Russia invaded its neighbour again last week, it shocked everyone. It's the biggest war in Europe since World War II and Ukraine's military death toll is already at 137 and counting. It was News Hub at 6 the evening after Russia first attacked. The biggest war in Europe since 1945 would puzzle people from the former Yugoslavia. And the same night, TVNZ's Europe correspondent Daniel Faitawa told One News viewers about the war kicking off like this. The moment the course of European history was ripped up and redirected. It's been said this is Russia's version of shock and awe. Now, it's a bit early to say if Europe's history has been ripped up by this, more likely it's just been added to and not in a nice way. But while TV news talked it up late last week, News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking was talking it down a few days earlier. I, mean, I still don't think there's going to be a war in the Ukraine. There's going to be there's a couple of skirmishes on the border and some of the pro-Russian aspects of the Ukraine and there's the stirring going on. But I think fundamentally someone's going to step back. And that was just three days before it all kicked off. But even after that, Russia's UN ambassador insisted this wasn't really a war, though his Ukrainian counterpart wasn't having that, as TVNZ's Anna Burns Francis in New York reported. The Russian president declared a war on the record. Should I play the video? of your president. Ambassador, shall I do that right now, or you can't confirm it? Mr Kurt here telling uh, Russia's ambassador he could pass on a message to his boss that there's no purgatory for war criminals. They go straight to hell instead. Meanwhile, over in Ireland, the ambassador there faced this on the late news on the public broadcaster RTE. Why should our government entertain your presence here when you are acting as an apologist for slaughter? Well, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, you might ask uh, that uh, uh, your government. It's up to them. I, I can leave any time. Uh... Ambassador Yuri Filatov, Ambassador of Russia to Ireland for the moment at least. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Bye. Not often that someone who's just been called an apologist for slaughter replies, good question. Now, in Australia last week, cautious broadcasters also wrestled with whether it was actually an invasion... 
The question is now, what does an invasion constitute or what constitutes an invasion? Has the invasion effectively begun? No, you couldn't say that. He said he is sending troops over the border, over the Ukraine, the internationally recognised Ukrainian border, in, into eastern Because he Ukraine. doesn't recognise that. Yeah. That's, that's the point. He, Tonight, Putin's push. The Russian president orders troops into eastern Ukraine. Putin's push. Vlad would be tickled pink with that. And Putin would have loved the way that the United Arab Emirates advised media not to call it an invasion either. The UAE also abstained from a United Nations resolution condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine, even though the country's on the UN Security Council right now. Lots of Russian money and expats and contracts there, coincidentally. But by this week, no one was pretending it wasn't an invasion and a war. Now, Europe has, broadly speaking, been stable since the Second World War, unlike other parts of the world. But some reporters trying to make that point have done it in a way that you could charitably describe as ethnocentric. But this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too. And if that U.S. report had Googled cradle of civilization, he might have chosen other words to express his surprise. Now, there was more where that came from, from other global Western broadcasters. It's really emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed. Children being killed every day with Putin's missiles. Now the unthinkable has happened to them. And this is not a developing third world nation. This is Europe. And NBC presenter Mehdi Hassan wasn't impressed with that. Europe has been home to some of the worst wars and worst war crimes in human history. I mean, the Holocaust. So why this surprise that bad things are happening in Europe? And second, when they say, oh, civilized cities and in another clip, well-dressed people and this is not the third world, they really mean white people, don't they? The reason they seem to want us to care more about Ukraine, and we should care about Ukraine, but not because they're white Europeans. That shouldn't be the reason we care about Ukraine. Now, one outlet unlikely to air anything that Vladimir Putin might disapprove of is RT, the Kremlin-backed national TV news channel founded in 2005. Last weekend, the channel vanished suddenly from the slates of Sky TV, just days after the war kicked off. On Midweek Media Watch this week, I took a look at that, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show last Wednesday. If you missed it, it's on our page of the RNZ website, the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we mentioned how state agencies providing and overseeing our broadcasting have been having their annual reviews lately, fronting up to MPs on Parliament's select committees. And this week there were two more, but not one of RNZ. The Social Services and Community Committee has excused RNZ from an annual oral hearing because, the committee chair told Media Watch, they've done them for the past three years and with 23 entities to review, the committee doesn't always do an in-depth review of each one each year. There will still be a pro forma review, she said, in which RNZ can respond to written questions from MPs. But that's a bit of a shame because, as we mentioned last week, the government has, reportedly, agreed to create a new public media entity to replace RNZ and TVNZ, an entity that will have crown funding and advertising revenue. It's probably the biggest public broadcasting shake-up for 30 years, and something MPs would surely want to know more about. 
But what was agreed in Cabinet has not yet been made public. And last Wednesday, as the aggro raged on the lawn outside Parliament, the Social Services and Community Committee did hear from the top brass at two other outlets affected by this, the government's broadcasting funding agency New Zealand On Air and TVNZ, both of whom said that they don't know the government's decision about the new public media entity either. We are very supportive of the objective of strengthening the public media. We are unaware of the content of or what that structure will be at the stage, so it does limit my viability uh, to answer. Now, with reference to the big protests recently, National Party MP Maureen Pugh spoke of growing mistrust of the media right on their doorstep. Almost violent um, against journalists, etc. And we've we've been seeing examples of that right outside our windows um, here at Parliament. So, just wondering what um, New Zealand on air is is doing to measure uh, the level of mistrust, um, but also controlling or countering the misinformation or fake news that is gathering momentum in the country. And, um, you know, how do you plan, if, if you do, um, on building, rebuilding that trust in um, the media platforms? Now, repairing trust in all media is a bit beyond the brief of New Zealand on air, but the chair, Dr Ruth Harley, said some parts of our society simply don't accept information and wear aluminium hats as a result. But she also took that as an opportunity to big up the output of the Public Interest Journalism Fund, which New Zealand on air operates on behalf of the government. And that the new uh, materials supplied under the PRJ, the Public Interest Journalism Fund, have supported that trust. And I think that the number of people watching and the number of different programs watched and on the number of different formats tells us that there's an appetite and the appetite is being supplied. And it was no coincidence that New Zealand On Air also chose that very day to put out a statement which said that its research showed 2.2 million unique users engaged with some of the stuff created from the Public Interest Journalism Fund in the six months to February. Now, it's not just the media-hating protesters who speak of this funding as the government trying to buy media compliance. It's also one of the things the National Party cited when it opposed the fund. And MP Maureen Pugh put it like this last Wednesday at New Zealand On Air's annual parliamentary review. Uh, An assumption made by some that taxpayer-funded media um, is bought media. So how do you respond to that and make sure that the public maintains their trust in the content? Now in reply, Dr Harley said they are now tracking people's trust in the output of the fund as well. And on Friday, the New Zealand Herald's editors sought to reassure their online readers by taking their questions about the fund in a live Q&A on its website. News media companies lobbied hard for access to public funding, which was previously only really available to broadcasters, and this won't be the last time that they, or those giving out the public money, find themselves having to defend it to the sceptical and the suspicious. Now, when TVNZ's top brass appeared before the Social Services and Community Committee on Wednesday, it was the government's planned new public media entity that was a top topic. TVNZ's first new boss for a decade, former National MP and Cabinet Minister Simon Power, told the committee that he was committed to informing and entertaining viewers whatever the government decides. And TVNZ's Chair Andy Coop then told National's MP and Broadcasting Spokesperson Melissa Lee there was no need to worry about the broadcasters having different cultures. We look at this as rather than perhaps overlaying the TVNZ culture on Radio New Zealand or the Radio New Zealand 
culture on TVNZ. The transition board will be looking to establish a new culture uh, within this new entity. And I think we, there will be a way forward in that, on, the, on that path. But when pressed by Nationals' Melissa Lee about how they could make plans without knowing the government's plan, Andy Coop said this. Look, we respect the position uh, that the, uh, the government's in. Um, you could say we're flying blind, but the same token, we're, we are awaiting a decision. I think we'll react quickly and proactively when we receive it. Um, I think the shareholder has been and our minister has been as informative as he's been able to be. But with the decision already made by Cabinet, according to reports, the government is clearly not being as forthcoming as it could be about the plan that's been made behind closed doors all along. Well, that's all we have for you on Media Watch this weekend. We'll be back, though, with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show with Midweek Media Watch, and then back with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.